Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. All right, so we're in Judges 19 again. I keep saying that. I'm a little bit nervous, but tonight we're, we're going to deal with hospitality, and I just wanted to, I wanted to open with um, a time in my life where I was... I was just a young man. I was out of college and I was, uh, so I was in seminary and I was just, just a single guy living. And I was, I was, in, I was in seminary. I lived there the first year of my three years there. And then afterwards um, I was serving at a church in Wisconsin up in Racine. And I was, I was up there. And so it's not too far away from where I was in seminary, but eventually the, so I was doing kind of like the weekend warrior thing where I'm there all week. And then over the weekend, I'm, I'm up there and just doing the youth pastor thing. And what they would do is to kind of acclimate me to the church, they would have me stay with families. And I would just stay because the church was basically a bunch of teenagers and their parents. And so they would just have me stay with, 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 with the, the families. And so, and they would they just, and mostly with the, the boys, the, the, the parents of the boys, but, but yeah, that would just kind of be in there, be greeting everybody saying, hi, how's it going? And I would basically be a member of their family for the weekend. And I would eat from their table. I would, and, and, and some of these families kind of rolled out the red carpet, like, oh, let's go see a hockey game. Like a hockey game. Now, let's just go do this. And have you been ice skating? You don't want to see me ice skating. Let's not do that. And so, yeah, they would just say, let's do this event. Joel's here. So I, I got to experience hospitality. And eventually um, they just kind of decided, you know what? Why have you drive back and forth? Just stay up here. And and commute instead of just you know coming up here for a bit so it'll save some money and and so yeah so they, their hospitality meant that i didn't have to pay room and board my, my second and third year in seminary which was nice and because i just didn't have money and that, that that meant fewer school loans to repay one day and so it was just really good hospitality they really they cared for me and they loved me and they they took care of my needs and and eventually when i got my own apartment up there they made sure i had tupperware food every once in a while and they would invite me over for dinner. They just took care of me. And you've all heard the story about my Walmart fork. And just they just had a couple just adopt me and they just took me to Walmart and bought me stuff for my apartment. Like, okay, great. Hospitality is a really great thing. And we live in a, in a land where hospitality isn't assumed. It's just, it, it isn't assumed you're going you're, you're gonna to be hospitable or you're going to receive hospitality. So when we get it, it makes us feel really good. And we're sometimes surprised, like, wow, I mean, that's, that was really nice. And we're very thankful. The text tonight, hospitality is assumed. And so whenever you're in a situation in the Middle East, and the Middle East still has a thing about hospitality today, that you're going to get hospitality, you're going to be taken care of. And to be a guest in someone's house is a big thing. It's like enemies can stop being enemies while one of them's a guest in another place. Okay, so hospitality is going to play into our text tonight and we're going to look at we're just going to look at a couple hospitality moments and what kind of hospitality is received and the text goes downhill really fast i mean really fast so we're going to be reading tonight i'll get this all ready here um so again we're in judges 19 so we're going to be meeting a levite again and a concubine and there's some other characters and pretty much the worst possible things you can imagine happening are going to happen. It, it is just um, just a really, really, it's a really difficult text. And I, it's an honor to be able to 
just to, just to be able to teach it with you tonight. And yeah, let's rock. So we are in relationship issues. So chapter 19, one to 10. In those days, Israel had no king. That's like the theme of the book of Judges. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, please, stay tonight and enjoy yourself. You know where this is going to go. You know how this is going to keep going. Okay. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, and he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. Now, that didn't sound too bad. What are you talking about, Joel? This is a hard text. That just sounded like an inconvenience. A frustrating thing. Oh, you're at, you're at your in-laws on Christmas or something. You want to get out of there. You just can't get out. I mean, my goodness. My, uh, have a secret code word. It's like, can we get out of here? I said potato. Isn't that our secret code word to get into the card? No. Um, well, Levite. We start with a Levite here. Like with last week, a Levite plays a major role in the story. That is not good. All right. I just don't want you to skip over that. It's not good when the Levite in Jesus's Good Samaritan story doesn't do what's right. And it's not good here. It wasn't good last week either. The Levite and his, you know, make me a priest kind of thing. No. I mean, we cringe when pastors start doing horrible things. Excuse me. When people who, who, who they shouldn't be involved with certain things start doing certain things, we expect differently of them. And it really says a lot about Israel and the culture back then when it's a Levite who is involved with such nonsense and such wickedness. And you can say what you want. By the time we get to the end of the story, you're going to despise this Levite. There's going to be some characters in this, in the, in this chapter you're going to really not like at all. But the Levite probably is going to be the number one. This guy right here. I mean, I'm just going to say that, okay? So you got a Levite here. Um, he's he illustrates the fact that he's the one who's going to be involved here, just the moral decay of Israel. Um, he's not living in his area. The, the text went to great lengths to say, here's where he's from, and then here's where he went. So up here, I'm pointing to the top here of this my screen. He's up here in the hill country of Ephraim, and he's going down here to the Bethlehem area, south of Jerusalem, to find a concubine, and then. He's going to be trying to travel back. Um, 
Yeah, before I get there, Randy texts in, you know, here in America, there's a saying that says fish and visitors smell after three days. And clearly that's not how things worked in this household. And uh, well, yeah, and he texted about the Benjamites. Yeah, we, we don't, I don't want to get there yet, but uh, yeah, I would, I, I would actually argue there, there's going to be characters in the story you think are the, are the worst guys. Um, the when I where I landed with this, I, the Levite to me is still the worst. And there's there's some there's some just nasty characters in the story here, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, concubine, we have the two of them had an issue. Uh, and by the way, a concubine is like a second class wife. So we saw a concubine in the Gideon story. And it wasn't, didn't have kind of like a, so she really wasn't an official wife. And so she, all of her children that they would have would kind of be, to use a bad word, kind of like bastardized or something. They, they, they weren't quite officially full. So they treated Avimel like that way. And so when it was Gideon's concubine. So, uh, well, the two of them had an issue. Now the NIV says that she was unfaithful and it uses a word that's really only used once in the Bible. And it kind of means harlot or playing the harlot, but it doesn't make sense with the story that she would go and cheat on him and then run home to dad. Like that would just bring two shames upon dad. It's already, there's already a shame that she's married and, and gone and she has to come back home and dad has to deal with this. Okay. But the fact that it would be well known that she played the prostitute on her husband and then them, that doesn't make sense. Plus we're going to see the Levite coming home or we've already read that where he's coming home and he's got his hat in his hand. He's kind of speaking nice to her. He wants her to come back. He wouldn't do that unless he's also done something wrong. So they had an issue. So I don't, I, we don't know too much about this, but it's awful convenient. It's, oh yeah. She just cheated on him and she took off, you know? No, if she cheated on him, she would die. It's like, you, you can't, you can't commit adultery and stay alive. You can't, that they just, that just didn't happen. So uh, they had an issue. They quarreled. And uh, yeah, it sounds like they had some big quarrel and they had to separate. And so we meet the father-in-law. So the Levite must have done something wrong because he goes and tries to persuade her to come back to him. And daddy is more than happy to have the man around. He keeps him around again and again. I'm not sure if it's the fact that he misses his baby girl or not. And I don't know if you can hear in the recording, but my baby girl is upstairs stomping around and she is not at all happy right now. And there's going to there's gonna come a day when I'm going to miss that, where I'm going to look forward to that. And I'm going to, you know, once she comes home to visit, and I'm not going to want her to leave. I'm going to want her to stay. And I'm going to, you know, hang, on, hang out with her again. And, and uh, remember the times when she wants to come color by me and make random noises. And, and remember, you know, she's my, she's my little angel. But right now, that's where this daddy's at, we think. Because he doesn't want anyone to leave. And they hey, stay, stay one, it's a stay till morning. You can go in the morning. Morning wakes up, he's got steak and eggs or something. Yeah, you can't go yet. You got to eat. And then uh, he's already eaten. Oh, you've already eaten. Take a break, you know. And eventually his hospitality turns into excessiveness because we have three days. And then all of a sudden it gets kind of inappropriate. Eat, drink, and be merry again and again. And um, all right, so. I've been blessed with decent in-laws. I've shared a beer with my father-in-law every, every now and again, but six days. I mean, just like drinking parties and like excessive, like, no, I mean, eventually it's like, okay, enough, pal. I got to go. I mean, enough is enough. I, mean, I just, I just can't, this is like an endless hospitality. Um, but this illustrates this guy's hospitality. The Levite's going to get is going to keep going downhill from here. And so here he is, 
getting really good hospitality. It's kind of inappropriate. It's mildly, you know, but still it's endless. And this, this would have been the life he could have had, had he just stayed here or as a neighbor or something like that. This doesn't sound like that bad of a life. Okay. His, his wife's probably going to be happy. The, the, her dad's going to be happy. All these things are going to work out, but he has to go back up North. He has to just do his thing. Now, the problem with this hospitality is um, the, the time period. And it's about, um, there's a tension here. And so we got, that's the first hospitality moment. It was just an endless fun thing, but he was, he wanted to get out of there and none of us blame him. But at the same time, some of us might sit in the, in the father-in-law's chair and go, you know what? I, I get it. I get why he doesn't want him to leave. His baby girl, I mean, this is before they had emails or whatnot. I mean, he probably misses her. So we get that go from relationship issues to the town square. And let's read 11 to 21. Well, when, when they were near Jebus on the day, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go to Gebeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gebeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went out, went on, and the sun set as they neared Gebeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for, for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gebeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, where I live. I have been to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants. Me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. Well, you are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. So, okay. This doesn't sound that bad. Joel, you said this is going to be a bad text tonight, a kind of a hard text. Well, okay, we're going to take a deep breath. It's going to get worse. Those of you who are reading ahead right now or might be, you know, throwing up your mouth a little bit. I don't know. Well, we start, we meet this servant. A servant, well, yeah, evidently he's got a servant, a, a young guy. And um, the, there's a tension here. It was six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and then another five or so miles to Gebeah. So this would have been, if you woke up nice and early in the morning and left at an appropriate time, you'd make this trip, no problem, especially if you've had a donkey or so. You know, you would be able to, in that time period, you could just walk that and you'd be, you'd get there by sunset. You are get there plenty of time. You'd be ready to go, no problem. So the tension is this stinking father-in-law of mine kept me, he kept, he just kept me and kept me and kept me. I never could get on the road. So I got to make stupid decisions like this. And so this, this servant guy is like, hey, um, let's stop early. Let's just stop here. Because if it gets too late, you know, this, there could be people on the road or whatnot. We, we're not going to be safe. You know, let's just, let's stop. 
let's just we got we got the first city we're going to come to this it's 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 you know a big city it should be okay and let's stop there and um i know you're ANSI master i know i know that you want to stop and, and you're trying to get us to Gebeya. i get it but let's just let's just stop and um no they they're probably exhausted the, the manservant suggested they stop there but the master will go to the master next uh, the master has some kind of a sense of right and wrong and stopping in a city controlled by foreigners would seem wrong in his eyes we can't stop there now, i'm not making that up he says it himself that's that's a foreigner city we can't stop there that's not right to me it makes the most sense but we can't stop there of course, what seems right will prove to be wrong, and the night could have had a much better ending. Of course, this highlights the tension of the chapter. The horrible things that are going to happen are, are not in a foreign city, but in an Israelite one. These are not the Jebusites that are going to do these things that are coming up. They are the Benjamites. So his great worry, no, 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 it's essentially unspoken. If we have to stop in some foreign city, who knows what's going to happen to us? Well, okay, pal, you fight to get to the, the, the Israelite-controlled city, and the things are going to happen to you. So much so that the old man who's, uh, who shows up here is like, hold on, um, we can't have you staying in the town square. It's almost like he knows about the people that, that we're going to encounter next, or it's just his basic hospitality. This is like, okay, yeah, we can't have you staying here. Someone's got to bring you in. You know, someone, because like I said, the hospitality thing. So this guy is a temporary resident of the city. He's not even a full you know, citizen of the area. He comes and offers to take them in. He fodders the donkeys. He offers water for their feet. You know, Jesus mentioned some of these things when talking at the Pharisee's house. Hey, you haven't given, you haven't given me water to wash my feet, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet and drenching her tears on my feet. And you didn't even give me water to, for my feet. So this guy gives fodder for the donkeys and water for the feet and some food and drinks so they can refresh themselves. Okay, good job. This is a good hospitality moment here. All right, this is good. And yeah, um, well, he, uh, he, the horrible irony here is that the man should have listened to his servant. The Levite should have paid attention. And well, now we're in the old man's house. 22-26. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. We must read on. We must read on. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house. Bring out the man who came to your house so we can uh, have sex with him. In the Hebrew there, it's the old-timey way to say no. We want to know him. Right. This isn't like they're going to play parlor games and, you know, have play 20 questions or anything like that. No, no, no. They, they bring them out and they're being violent about it. So most likely this is like a rape scenario. It, it's, it's, there's nothing gentle and, and sweet, whispering sweet nothings or anything like that. No, bring him out, you know, grab a hold of his shoulders if you need to, get him out here. So we're going to have sex. With, we want to have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside. Not the one they wanted to come out, for the record. They didn't want him. They wanted, they wanted the guy they knew was there. No, my friends, don't be so vile. That's quite a word. Wicked. Don't be that. Since this man is my guest, 
don't do this outrageous thing. Look, not a great moment for the man here. I'm just going to say, look, here is my virgin daughter and here's his concubine. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever is right in your own eyes. You can use them however you wish. But as for the man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men will not listen to him. So the man goes outside. He takes his concubine and sends her outside to them. Or maybe he's just in the doorway and he's like, get out of here. They raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Well, we start with some wicked men here as we follow down this, uh, this worksheet page. Um, let's just be blunt. There is nothing redeemable about these characters. Some groups have looked at this text and said, well, these men were just wild animals who just wanted to rape, to rape anything. And they just made it about that. And they're not exactly wrong because what happens? You know, they, they end up still raping, even though it's not the one they wanted to rape. So this is not an easy text. I just, I don't even like talking about this kind of stuff. This is stuff that doesn't come up in conversation. And yet we're having to bring this stuff up. But the old man engages them in conversation and calls what they want to, to do a vile, wicked thing. Go to the owner of the house who basically says this, don't sodomize the man, but here, here's two women. Do what you think is right with them. The man condemns the lusty mob for thinking of doing something horrible to the man, but ends up himself doing something horrible and offering up the two women. So we're going to talk about relativistic morality. In fact, I kind of I kind of just I entitled some of this in my mind the failure, the great failure of moral relativism. When everything is just whatever's right in your own eyes, you end up doing stupid crap like this. It's like, yeah, don't rape my guest, but you know what? If you want to rape someone else, I mean, I, fine. Here it is. Here they are. Go for it. Even his daughter. Oh my gosh. Uh, he thinks maybe he can appease the mob if he offers them two people instead of one person. I don't know. It's just odd that he offers two and they, when they want one. They're not asking for the women. They're asking for the guy. Asking, demanding, pounding. You know, doing their growling, you know, whatever it is outside there, making a ruckus, bring out this guy. Maybe it's kind of like when Gaston whips up the townspeople to go get the beast. You know, you know they're out there with pitchforks and porches and torches and they're going at it. And, 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 and give us that guy. And no, well, here's two women instead. And... And yeah, it's Ruth takes it in a good point. Um, obviously, the women are of little value to the old man and the Levite. Sadly, that's a great point. And I hate that that's a great point. That's a great point. Daniel takes it. You'd think the Benjamites would have learned from what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God didn't take too kindly to such behavior. Exactly. This is like another version of that. But in that story, at least with like Lot and his daughters, it's like that was angels being, being it's like involved in that. And these are clearly not angels. In, I mean, not angels involved in like the bad stuff, but it's like, this is, there was something almost redeemable about that story and how God was unfolding things. And here, I don't know what's going to be redeemable at all. This is another one of those texts where you're like, what in the world do you do? 
And, and the answer can't be, hey, guess what? Don't be like the rapey guys. There's got to be something deeper than that. That's just, too, that's just too general. Yes, indeed, don't act like them and don't look at life through that lens and try to, but there's got to be something deeper. I want to learn from the old man. I want to learn from the Levite. There's something I think we can learn from their horrible examples. In the Levite's case, abhorrent example. But we can't got to continue. Um, the man, while he seizes the opportunity, he hands his cocky mind over to the horde. This, well, it saves him, of course, but it reveals his depravity to the extreme. When a Levite illustrates doing what is right in his own eyes as a standard of the day, that's all we need to know. We would expect a Levite to say, oh, hold on a second. And we discussed this last week with a Levite that kept saying, make me, he's, I'm going to make you a priest. And he should have said, hold on. God already has his priests. I, I don't mind coming and blessing your house and kind of being part of your thing here, but I'm not a priest. I'm just a Levite. We would expect the Levite to stand up and say that last week. And this week we're expecting to say, hold on here. Hold on. There's a better choice we can make instead of thinking about covering his stinking butt. I mean, we, we, reading this, I, uh, we want the Levite to at least be John Wayne and go out there and just take it and leave his concubine, let her, let her stay safe in the house. Because the dude just goes to sleep. I mean, you look at this and he's, we start the next thing, he wakes up the next morning. He's like, oh yeah, that was, go to sleep. You know, why not? The concubine, well, this poor gal. According to Old Testament law, if a woman is raped in the confines of the city and she calls or screams out, she's considered innocent. This was to protect her from accusations after the fact. Because I guess anybody could just go and shack up with anybody and say, well, I was raped. Well, this is to kind of protect the people involved here. If, if you were in the city and you called out and nobody came to rescue you, then, you know, you're, that's, that's not your fault. You're not because remember, if you've committed adultery, you're going to die. If you're going to do certain things, you're going to die. So that's why the Old Testament law put in something in there to protect, especially the woman who might not be able to defend herself. But if she's in the city and she calls out and the assumption is someone's going to come rescue her. The text here presents this woman in pretty much as innocent eyes as possible. So we're left to assume that she did call out and the Benjamites of the area didn't give a rip. They just let her just be used and divvied up and whatever that is. Hmm. The, just the, the basic depravity of the townspeople who did nothing to help. The poor woman was used as an object of hate and lust all night and essentially left to die. To her credit, she's able to, in whatever state she's in, get back to the place that they were, they were staying in, the old man's house. And she used the last of her energy just to collapse there. And We have a hospitality moment number two. Maybe the old man thought that hospitality was only for the male guests. I know feminist readers of our text would go there and talk about how little value women had and it's a patriarchal world and life is always like that. And we needed, we needed the great movements of feminism to right those wrongs. And some of that may indeed be true. I don't know, but the text doesn't go there, okay? If you treat this text with fair value, you're not mad at the patriarchy, you're mad at the Levite. 
you're mad at, you're just responding to the fact that nobody cared for her, nobody helped. And maybe the old man thought that hospitality was only for the male guests. The old man confronted the mob and he fought for the honor of the, of his hospitable household. It's like he has some kind of a sense of honor. Don't do that to my guest. You can do it to these two, including my own daughter, but to my guest? You know, we, we wanted Jephthah to stand up for his daughter too when he had to sacrifice her because of his stupid vow. We wanted that. We wanted him to go, wait a minute. Daddy stand up for their daughters and daddy do, daddy's protect and daddy's, it's like, why would you go there? Well, the old man illustrates the great moral weakness of doing what is right in your own eyes. I don't want you to miss this. And we'll get there again later today. When you're doing what is right in your own eyes and your focus is what is right in your own eyes, you miss something huge. At no point in this story, or really since Samson or before, is anybody wanting to do what's right in God's eyes? That right there should define your life. You're faced with a really horrible decision. You're faced with a hard decision. You just don't know what to do. What would God want me to do? Well, I don't know. Get in his word. Get to know God by what he has already said. What does God expect of me? Well, he wants me to give him glory. He wants me to, to, to make decisions that please him. That's a great start. That doesn't even come up at all in our text, not even remotely. It's like, who cares? Like God is just like an afterthought. Like, oh, whatever. And you're a Levite. Hold on. You should at least have something there. Eh, whatever. It just really doesn't matter. Yeah, the old man isn't receiving any Father of the Year awards anytime soon. You're right, Daniel. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Hospitality and honor are never more important than obedience to God. Ever. Well, I got to keep my honor. A man has to be honorable. No. No. That is second place. Well, hospitality. No. Hospitality is protecting the weakest, the most vulnerable, not the most important. That's what a man does. That's what a man better do. That's not what happens. Shame on you, old man. Shame on you, Levite. I mean, shame on you, wicked men of the city, too. That's absolutely horrible. They're not let off the hook. But I'm not focusing on them right now because there's nothing at all. At no point in the story are they presented heroically. The Levite is like the we're, we're, our, our brain is silently wanting to root for him or something that maybe he can get back home or, but no, we can't. Well, what's some further issues? Let's just read on here. Let me scroll down so we can see. My paper out of the way. You got a cooperate page. Please scroll down. Here we go. I need to move the page up. Pardon me for one second. Okay. 27 to 30. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, look how callous that is. 
There lay his concubine, oh, surprise, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. That poor thing. She's reaching out with all she has. He said to her, get up, let's go. You say those words any way you want. Say them sweetly. Get up, let's go. Come on, sweetheart, let's go. It doesn't matter how he says it. He could be callous, he could be sweet. It doesn't matter. Get up, let's go. Like you jerk. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey. Maybe he was going, oh, she's fine. I guess I gotta lift you up. I don't know. He puts her on his donkey and sets out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. So if you're saying to yourself, gosh, Joel, nothing gets worse than gang rape by a bunch of lusty guys and being left for dead. Well, this might be worse. Yeah. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been done or, or seen. Not since the day of the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. A couple of texts coming in here from Mick. Almost immediately after Genesis 2, 24, marriage is anything but the picture God had in mind of Jesus and the church. It's as if though two will become one flesh, never met it past Eden. Great point. Um, Daniel texts in, that's heartless no matter how he says it. It's like, yeah, get up, let's go. It is. Randy texts in, one, one question, Joel, and I don't know if it should be discussed at large. Uh, if, this, if his woman had been unfaithful, could this have been a case of you want to uh, be with other men? Here's your big chance. Uh, I don't think the text allows that, but I, I, I could be a possibility. I, uh, it's not, and he, he continues not to excuse him at all, of course. And, and of course, I mean, I wouldn't assume that, but you know what? It might be possible because this guy seems pretty self-centered. He Maybe he was thinking something like that. I don't know. But just the text never gives us the key things we need. Um, like if that was the case, we would have expected him not to go back down to Bethlehem. We just said, fine, go rot with your father. You know, just go down there. You know, you, you're not worth me anyway or something like that. I don't know. But it's, 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 you know, it's possible. But all we know is what the text tells us and the text... Um, yeah, thanks, Mick. Uh, the Levite was selfish and pragmatic. While selfishness is readily condemned, pragmatism rarely is, even by believers. He was, he was pragmatic. Let's just get home. Let's just be done with this. And, well, we have, we have her master. That's how it's put here. So after tossing his concubine to the lusty mob all night, the godly Levite, godly Levite, yeah, gone to bed. He rises with no apparent remorse or even thought for the one who he selfishly used to secure his own deliverance one who paid for his salvation from the mob with her very body. If there's any Christ-like character in this story, it's the concubine who secured salvation by being broken by her body. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, if there's anybody that's to write home about in the story, it's his concubine and just, just being victimized by, oh my gosh. Oh, the, he, then he just basically trips over her and sees her. Oh yeah, there you are. Let's go. What a callous, cold-hearted man this Levite is. And uh, well, the, the concubine, she gets on the, she gets put on the donkey. They travel home. Is she dead? See, this, this gets kind of creepy. The text doesn't say she died. The text says he cut her up. Let that sink in for just one second. I'm gonna take a drink of coffee and, and try to swallow some of the vomit that's in my mouth.
The text never says she died. Now, all translations like the Vulgate add to this text, well, then she must have died or she died. It's not there. It's not there. So either they get home and she's still breathing, barely. I mean, she, we, we get that she's almost dead. The text kind of paints her that she's passed out. She's essentially almost dead, but maybe she could route. We just don't know. But when they get home, the Levite grabs a knife. And if she wasn't dead, she is now. Wow. I'm not making this up. The text never says she dies. All the text says is the man cuts her up. Wow. He slices her up, sends her body parts as a graphic call to arms to awaken Israel from its moral laziness. Yeah, yeah, we want to care about Israel's moral laziness. No, you bum. We care about your moral laziness. I'm not worried about Israel right now, Levite. I'm worried about you. Oh, we got to use this as a wake them up moment. Let's rally the troops. Oh, shut it. Oh. I guess we just have to forget how callous and uncaring this man was. You know, I'm, I'm going to say it again. I would have more respect for this guy if he turned into John Wayne and said, you know what? You, you, want, you want to have at me? Even in that way? Well, here we go. Have at me. Let's have at it. And if it ends up that I, I'm used by you the way you wanted me to be used by you, fine. But I'm going to have a fight, and I'm going to protect the people in there. And then go have a rallying cry to Israel. Then do things and send, you know, send emissaries around the, around the country and say, you know what? I just got abused by a mob, and this is supposed to be a Benjamite. And, I mean, we'd have respect then. We'd at least go, you know what? That'd be a moment right then. He was willing to stand up and defend his family right then. And an old man who can't defend himself, that would have been a moment. Then we'd look at this chapter in the next chapter and go, yeah, rally and go get those Benjamites. Now, like, oh, you know, you're rallying the troops when you were a moral and physical weakling. And worse, you victimized the one that you're supposed to be married to. Oh, well, Everyone else, mission accomplished. The rabble has been roused. And we learn more about that next week. Text coming in. Randy texting. Uh, what, what, what will her previously hospitable father say when he finds out about this? Yeah. Can you imagine the father going to the town square? And what's this? Oh, well, this is an arm. Do you recognize this arm? He, he might just recognize that arm. This was sent in the mail. This part of our Israel just received this. And there's a rallying cry. And can you imagine? Wow. Um, Mick texts in, I think, but there was no answer. Maybe the text way of saying she was dead. It's possible. She could have been just passed out. She could have been. I mean, you, you, I mean, these are not things you want to research, but you could research you know, someone who's been through such trauma and how they are, you know, they go through such shock and PTSD that they go into some kind of a, a coma, comatic state or something. I, I don't even want to imagine the state her body was in shock alone and just the abuse and the trauma and the pounding. And uh, they probably didn't take too kindly to her that these are guys that wanted A and they received B and they weren't happy about it. I'm sure whatever they did to her, 
was not, I don't think it was very sexual. I think it was more animalistic. Okay, that's the kind of picture we're getting here. So I can just imagine how she's probably beaten within an inch of her life, used within an inch of her life. And, but the text doesn't say she's dead, but she just doesn't, you're right, she doesn't answer him. It's, um, you know, Sandy texts in, she, maybe she didn't want to respond because there was there would have been another round of God knows what. I, yeah, I, I that that's a great point. Maybe she just had nothing left in her. Maybe she didn't want to invite anything else. Um, Daniel's and so now somehow it's Israel's fault. You didn't stand up at the time. Too little, too late, buddy. Fantastic point. That's exactly that's exactly where I'm going with that. Again, had he went out there and faced it like a man. And yeah, he had to get, he gets beat up or raped or whatever he had to go through as horrible as that sounds. At least it's not your, at least you're not hiding behind your concubine and just shoving her out the door to take it for you. That's just, there's nothing redeemable about that. This is why, I, this is why though the Benjamites in this story are absolutely horrible. The Levite to me is just like, oh man, that's even, this seems to me like it's even worse, especially as a husband and as a father. It's just like both the old man and the Levite characters hit me twice. And I'm sitting there in my office last night wondering how in the world am I going to teach this? I'm just wiping tears. Like it's just, it's just killing me, this text. But we can land this plane. In, in pink on your page here, we're going to conclude with these three things. Yeah, before we do so, Mick takes in as a tragedy through and through, arguably the ugliest narrative in the Bible. Yes. Agreed. This is terrible. There are those who look at this text and do not see anything against homosexuality. That they interpret this text as no, no, no. This is the Bible not condemning homosexuality, but instead condemning rape. I just wanted to remind you something that these men, well, just look at verse 25 real quick. What happened? What happens right before then? Well, clear, clearly, clearly, the sin here in this text was brutal, brutal rape. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter in that sense if it's rape that is of a homosexual nature or rape of a heterosexual nature. Rape is still rape. But there's something must be said. If this is the only text you have in the Bible that mentions homosexuality, it's going to be kind of hard to, all you'd get would be, you know what, okay, don't do this vile, wicked thing. This is outrageous. This is not the norm. This is like something outrageous. This is something that's not normal. This is abnormal. This is wicked. This is horrible. Don't do this. Don't do it. And, and yeah, the, 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 the act of the homosexual act would be just vile. Don't do this vile thing. There's condemnation there. Please know, anytime homosexuality is mentioned in the Bible, it is never, ever, ever done so in a positive light. Ever. And so the point of this text isn't that homosexuality is evil. That's not the main point of the text. Okay, to, to, to take that just from this text, you'd be not taking this text at face value and to treating it fairly. But we, got, we, we can't ignore the fact that they still wanted the man. Check out verse 25. 
we'll go back to we'll go back we'll just go back to 23 the owner of the house went outside and said to them no my friends don't be so vile this man is my guest don't do this outrageous thing look here is my virgin daughter and his concubine i will bring them out to you now and you can use them to do whatever you wish but as for this man don't do such an outrageous thing here it is but the men would not listen to him these guys wanted what they wanted they wanted something homosexual and the man said no here's something heterosexual instead but the men would not listen to him that right there doesn't let anybody off the hook you see they had these intents they had these desires and they didn't get to act upon those desires in the way they wanted to act upon those desires but they still did act upon those desires sinfully the men so for anyone who says this text is not about homosexuality needs to read verse 25 again the men weren't gonna we're gonna listen to that they didn't want that trade they wanted the man and i, I don't want to put anything more into that sentence but you're hearing me put more into that sentence they wanted the man they would not listen to him they wouldn't so the text the very next thing we get here they wouldn't listen to him and so this man has to do has to deal with something like they don't want it you can imagine the internal dialogue in the house is well you know what they're not taking her they're not taking him um you know it's just uh, hold on I'll, I'll get her outside myself you know no they, they it's like these guys don't they they want what they want and you know that's they still wanted the man <sighs> Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, the horde still wanted the man. At no point in the Bible is homosexuality painted in a positive light. This is another one of those where it's not, but it's just not the point of the passage. The great failure of moral relativism. This is where we really land the plane. And I mean, when it comes down to it, this is the hard part about the book of Judges. All of Judges is moral relativism. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's moral relativism. We do moral relativism when we say crap like, well, you'll never know unless you walk a mile in her shoes. Or, you know, it's just, she's had a really hard life, so I don't know what I would do in her situation. Yeah, that's empathetic. Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah, that's kind. That's understanding. But that's not, you're not defining truth based upon experience. Experience illustrates truth. It never defines truth. God defines truth. It's like, what is right in Yahweh's eyes? That's need to be, that, that needs to be how we live this life. Not what's right in my eyes. So you see, was the old man wrong in what he did? Now, what he did was certainly better. He made a better choice than maybe what he thought his culture would allow. He thought, well, my culture's not going to allow me to take the man outside. But maybe they'll allow me to toss the women outside. He lived in a very morally debased and relaxed time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Was he wrong to preserve the honor of whom his culture might have deemed more important? Was that wrong? Are right and wrong simply allowed to be defined by the standards of a given culture? I mean, 
the Bible is unique in that it, 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 it in all the in, the, in the surrounding cultures of the New Testament and the surrounding cultures of the Old Testament, homosexuality was not really frowned upon. It wasn't exactly, you know, thumbs up, but they're like, oh, whatever, just do your thing. And the, and the Bible actually takes steps to speak against it. The Bible never is what's right in our own eyes. It is what's right in God's eyes. So this old man's like, well, you know what? I'm going to do the best thing I can think of doing because my culture is kind of like this. And this evil Israelite culture is so morally debased. And I guess this is okay. Maybe this is okay. So I'll make the best possible choice I could rather than saying, heck no, God expects this. And so if I have to die on that hill, I'm going to die on that hill because God expects this. What's right in God's eyes. See, that's what Esther ends up having to do. It's like, if I die, I die. That's what Ruth does with Naomi. You know, where you're going to go, I'm going to go. Where, where you stay, I'm going to stay. And if I, where you die, I'm going to die eventually. It's like, this is it. I'm hitching my wagons with you. Come what may. Those are great moments of faith. Here, it's like, well, you know, society gives me an option B. So I think we're going to take option B. I'm not saying I'm happy about it, but here's what it is. No. When the standard is what's right in, in your own eyes, it no longer is what is right in God's eyes. And let's just be blunt. When morality is relative, the weakest suffer to the powerful. The innocent are broken by the depraved. When the standard is man, whoever is most decides what is best. By the way, we call that democracy where 51 get to rule 100. Whoever is most decides what is best. Morality is defined by the most. Doesn't matter if it's, if it's considered good or evil, it's, it's the most. When, real, when morality is relative versus absolute, God sets the standard and God doesn't change. When it's relative to time and situation, we look back and go, well, I get why they had slaves, you know, because they had this and, and they had this economy and they had this thing they were dealing with. And I get why they did this and why they did that. Because you know what? It was a different world back then. They had different things. Hold on. Hold on. God has spoken and we have to obey him. His word is what we follow. When morality is relative, the weakest suffer to the powerful. The innocent are broken by the depraved. When the standard is man, whoever is most decides what is best. But guess what? A woman is now dead. A daughter is now scarred. And two reasonably powerful men feel justified in the midst of their abhorrent failure to even do what is decent. I want to say that again. A woman is now dead. A daughter is now scarred. And the two reasonably powerful men feel justified in the midst of their abhorrent failure to do what was even decent. Forget doing what's right and wrong. They didn't even do the decent thing. Dang. I mean, even the most cowardly thing would be like finding a back door and running away. They didn't do anything like that. When morality is relative, the weakest suffer the most. We've got to remember that. If this lesson teaches us anything tonight, morality cannot be relative. Relative to what? Your thoughts, your experience, what society thinks, 
society can keep changing their mind about any, any moral topic you want. We who follow Jesus, we who follow God, who are disciples, we have to stand with the truth. Now, we do so in a loving way, but morality is not relative. Mick texts it in. Oh, Dan Daniel texts a good question. What would have happened if the old man had done the right thing? Would the angry mob have given up eventually? I mean, if you take, if you take the, the text as it says, they weren't getting inside the house. Now they were making her fuss, but don't think of them like the, uh, the three little pig story with the wolf. I'm going to blow your house down. You, you either give me what you want, or you're not going to have a house anymore. No, I mean, the, they weren't getting anywhere. They were just out there, bam, 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 you know, banging or making noise. But eventually, I mean, they weren't getting in. I mean, we get the point maybe that the, the, the old man was feeling like he, he didn't have another option and maybe he was going to lose his house. They were going to break in and have at everybody. And maybe that's why he made his decisions, but we don't know. They hadn't gotten in just yet. And I mean, they were relatively safe evidently because until they, you know, took action. But I don't know, maybe they could have given up, but we just don't know. Probably the text would probably say, no, they were in danger, but it doesn't. So um, Mick texted, even if you take out Sodom and Gomorrah or this text, the New Testament is abundantly clear that homosexuality is a sin before God, 1 Corinthians 6, clearly says that Christians can no longer partake in it. Yeah, it's just, it's just not the main point of this text, but, but people have used this text to say, no, 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 the Bible never condemns homosexuality. They're condemning homosexual rape, and we all condemn that. Well, good, condemn that. But the men still wanted the man. And that was they were, and so they 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 still did what they did, but they still wanted what they wanted, and desires um, that are acted upon are clearly clearly desires lead to things. The Book of James tells us that, and we're to love our God with all of our heart. Our desires matter. We can't just bow down to them and let them lead us astray. Sandy texts in. I wonder if the acts would have been so violent if they had been given what they originally wanted. He practically invited them to use her however they wanted it as if she was just another object in his household. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to hear about this man and this hospitality. Oh, hospitality. Um, yeah, these guys were pretty sick dudes. Why didn't you offer the other guy, the servant? Now, the servant probably was a boy, and that just kind of makes it extra creepy. But you're offering your daughter. I mean, if this was just about, if this was just about protecting the guy, there was other people in this house they could have been offered, but he didn't. It's like he took pains to do what he did. And hospitality, my butt, you know, this is, this is just a man trying to wiggle off the hook here. And I wonder what their dinner table was like that night, that daughter and that old man. I really wonder what that, if, they, if they're going to talk again, you were going to send me out into that? Really? Me being a virgin, me, me waiting one day for you to give me away for, for this husband that one day will, will have me. And you were just going to toss that all aside for, for, for a guest? I mean, seriously, dad, seriously, I don't know. This, this is just messed up. The great failure of moral relativism is that the weakest get, get destroyed. They get hurt and the powerful feel justified doing so. There's gotta be a standard we hold to and live by. Sherry texted in, would the woman have called to help since the man gave into the mob? We are left, it's a good question. We don't know if, if, if the entire 
population was at the door or just a bunch of unruly, lusty guys. The text would give us an idea that some, I think it says some of the wicked men of the city showed up. And so there, there had to have been other people in their houses that could have heard something maybe, I don't know. But regardless, she's off the hook. No one's condemning her. I'm gonna conclude with Ephesians 5.25 because how do I as a husband and a father, how do you as a Christian, how do you respond to this text? Ephesians 5.25. It says this, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I had a moment a number of years ago. We were out, uh, my wife and I were at, our, were at a bowling alley New Year's Eve. It's a bad experience. And just, just people, alcohol, and we, it wasn't fun, okay? And it got to the point where the people of the, the lane next to us, like they were really, you know, it's close quarters and they were just, they were really getting drunk. And, uh, you know, one of the guys wanted to say some things to my wife and he got in her face, he was pointing a finger. And then he said to her, you want to step outside this older man to my wife. Now I look back at this moment and I wasn't exactly happy about my response. I look back and I, I didn't sleep very well the next two nights because my response wasn't, I mean, I'm a pastor. What does a pastor do in that moment? I know what my flesh wanted to do. I wanted to lay the guy out and then drag him outside, rouse him and say, hey, you're outside. Oh, you just woke up. Let's have at it again. That's what my flesh wanted to do. My flesh was also scared because I've had enough of drunks in my past or whatnot. And I don't like those kind of moments. In that moment, as my wife is getting her, a finger put in her face, what do I do? Well, I mean, I always tell people, beware of people who are heroes of their own stories. I'm kind of a hero here, but kind of not. I don't, I don't feel like a hero. What did I do? I stepped in between them. So the man who was looking up at my six foot two frame at that point, and was poking me in the chest versus poking, trying to poke her in the forehead. I just stood there. I just looked down at him. What stopped me? Two things. Well, I was kind of scared because it's just, it just a moment. But, it, but also, that man had kids. It was, a, it was a family New Year's Eve party. And the kids are all over there looking at their dad being a drunk idiot. You can't, you can't do that to some kids. I mean, I'm just like, what do I do? What do I do? I just stood there quietly and just, you know what? I just stood in the way. All I did was stand in the way. So my wife wasn't going to be threatened by some guy. If she wanted to peek around me and, and, and you know, that's her own business, but nobody was just going to stand there and was going to just do that kind of stuff to my wife. I wasn't going to be behind her. I was going to be in front of her. I, I was like a German shepherd. I got in between the two. Now I didn't get to sleep that night. Because I'm thinking to myself, I must have been a weakly. Why, why didn't I do more? Why, and I'm, I'm talking to my dad. My dad's like, well, you're a pastor. The last thing you need, you just started at a new church up in displays. The last thing you need is to have a, a, an arrest on your record or something like that. And, and so I'm reading this text and I'm thinking about that. I'm like at the Levite. Like, and so the sinful part of me is going, was I like that Levite? Where I just, you know, didn't stand up and do the right thing. And no, I, I did stand up and get in between, but I wrestled with that. And I didn't get to sleep the next few nights. It was hard on me. I'm like, should I have done more? Should I have done more? Should I have done more? You see, Ephesians 5.25, 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Don't be like this Levite who did what was right in his own eyes and didn't give himself up for his wife. Instead, let his wife just give, be given up for him. You see, love is three S words. And if you're not married, fine. Love this way. You have relationships. If you say love in your relationships, love has to be this way. It's three S words. Selfless. Sacrifice. Service. If you're doing those three things, you are showing love biblically. Selfless, sacrificial service. That's love. That's not in this text. This text is just ugh, nothing but bad. Moral relativism brings this. Only the absolute truth of God's word brings hope and healing to a rotten situation. Thank you for letting me share from Judges 19 tonight. God bless.